the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Alpha, Omega, and the 22 possible glottal states in between are still not enough letters to describe the chartreuse and puce highlights of the Mesopotamian dawn. No, they're not. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. And I'm Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio. Uh, this time we talk with Steve White about his temporal regulatory authority novel, Gods of Dawn, also known as the Jason Thano time travel series. Um, Steve discusses papal conspiracy theories with us and alien shenanigans going on at the dawn of history in Uruk and uh, Eridu and lots more. And, of course, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Leiden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now, here's the news. How's about that August contest for a free-signed copy of the new entry in Larry Correa's best-selling Monster Hunter series, Monster Hunter Siege? Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. In Larry Korea's new book, it's all hands on deck as the MHI team goes to war with monsters in their own dimension. Now we're asking you to do the monster mash. What character or characters from another fantasy, science fiction, or horror series would you like to see team up with Owen Pitt and the MHI crew? Let us know in a short, that's 100 words or fewer, paragraph for a chance to win that signed copy of Monster Hunter Siege. Send your entry to contest at bain.com no later than August 20th. Make sure to put August Contest in the subject line, and please remember to include your name. Hey, if it's good, and surely it will be, surely the winning entry will be published as part of the announcement of the winner. I want to welcome Steve White back to the podcast. Hello, Steve. Hi, Tony. Glad to be back. Steve White... And Steve, correct me on any of this. Uh, Steve White is the author of 22 novels with Bane books. Along with many standalone novels, Steve's Bane series includes the Prince of Sunset series, the Disinherited series, the Star series, and uh, uh, Steve is also the author with David Weber, Shirley Meyer, and Charles E. Gannon of the Starfire series of novels, which include, uh, that one's ongoing, and that includes entries Insurrection, Crusade, and Death Ground, the Shiva Option. Exodus, Extremists, and Imperative. And the next one's going to be called? Oblivion. Oblivion. Yes, if that sounds somewhat ominous, the impression is not incorrect. Yikes. He's the creator of the popular Jason Thano time travel series, also known as the Temporal Regulatory Authority series. I believe that's our official title for it. Um, these books include Blood of Heroes, Sunset of the Gods, Pirates of the Time Stream, Ghosts of Time, Soldiers Out of Time, and uh, Gods of Dawn. More on that one in a moment. That's what we'll be talking about. Also upcoming is a very cool new science fiction military adventure and alternate history cross um, that Steve has done called Her Majesty's American. That's the title, right? Right. <laughs> I got that right. Okay. Um, it's sitting on my desk, so I should. Um, oh, well. The, uh, Tony and I haven't delved into it yet, but from the short story uh, that we read set in that universe, we're very excited about it. I think Bane readers are going to love this, uh, this new book coming up. But uh, they'll also love Gods of Dawn, which is now at booksellers everywhere. And it features Steve's time travel special forces operator, Jason Thano. Uh, so, Steve... Gods of Dawn eventually takes us far back in time, as the title implies, back to the dawn of history. Uh, but we began in Earth's 24th century. Um, can you sort of bring us up to date where we are in the Temporal Regulatory Authority uh, series timeline in Gods of Dawn? The year is in the early 2380s. <clears throat> At the beginning of the series, Jason, who, as you mentioned, works for the Temporal Regulatory Authority, the bureaucracy that regulates time travel, 
is at the beginning of getting thoroughly burned out by having to keep ivory tower academics alive through things like the Fourth Crusade while they take notes. <clears throat> However, in the course of the first novel, things get a little more exciting because he discovers <clears throat> the existence of the alien Telloy in Earth's history. And subsequently, in the in the next novel of the series, <clears throat> he discovers that the transhumanist underground is active in the past, that they have time traveled and they're working to subvert the past. <clears throat> this discovery results in the creation of the Temporal Regulatory Authority's Special Operations Section, with uh, Jason in command of it. And <clears throat> that's basically where we stand now. The, most recently, it has been discovered that the transhumanists, in their latest plot, have <clears throat> went back 500 years and founded an extrasolar colony to just sit there for 500 years, growing into a major military power, uh, which will suddenly appear seemingly from nowhere when the transhumanists try for a takeover. And the transhumanists is, are what some of the bad guys. Uh, there are two main menaces. Both are rather nasty. Um, so tell us about the other one, maybe first the Teloy and, or the Teloy, particularly about the factions they form and because these play a role in Gods of Dawn as well. Telloy are a race of eight-foot-tall humanoids who, by about 100,000 years ago, had genetically engineered themselves into not quite immortality, but incredibly long lifespans, <clears throat> and had to <clears throat> figure out something to do to pass the time. And uh, one particular group, the <clears throat> excuse me, the Oratioi Zhonglu, decided to set themselves up as gods. And they chose Earth to do this because on Earth there was a species known, better known as Homo erectus, which made itself into being genetically engineered into a kind of sub slave race. Subsequently, however, the, uh, <clears throat> the slaves got uppity, and the um, Telloim, <clears throat> who had become known among the knew the humans as gods, specifically as the Anunnaki, the gods of the ancient Sumerians. Eventually, they moved north uh, to the Aegean, among other places, where they became the basis of the Olympian gods. Yeah, and Jason first, I guess, met, meets the them as uh, as Olympian gods. Yes, uh, in much later, however, the uh, the Teloi got into a war with another race, the Nagomo, which was pretty much a war of mutual annihilation. But the, the hardcore of the uh, of the Teloi military, the so-called Tuoba Zhonglu, escaped from the general cataclysm and uh, are now wandering around the galaxy brooding about uh, how they were betrayed by the decadent uh, remainder of their race, and they really could have won. So you have these two groups of Telloi. The, uh, the, the Tuoba Zhonglu regard the Oratioi Zhonglu as a bunch of effete dilettantes, and the Oratio Zhonglu regard the Tuoba Zhonglu as a bunch of boneheaded militarists. Both are right. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're they're rather arrogant sorts, and only mitigated by the fact that they're crazy as hell as well. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> a, a, a side effect of their near immortality. You seem to do that. Um, the, the more power you give to um, your uh, bad guy characters, uh, the uh, the more crazy it makes them. Is that a is that an accurate theme? I, I, I think that's a recurring theme. Yeah. So, um, and the Nagomo, Nogamo also play a role um, eventually in uh, in a couple of the books in the series as well. Um, and, Probably spoiler to talk about that too much. There are dis these despicable transhumanists who are uh, entirely our own fault, humans. Um, these guys are like the kind of Nazis the Nazis want to be, right? They tell us tell us more about the transhumanists. Uh, they're sort of like the Nazis 
if the Nazis had had things like genetic engineering, nanotechnology, cybernetic enhancements, direct neural interfacing, and so forth. <clears throat> the uh, What the transhumanists wanted to, wanted to do was uh, transform humanity into specialized castes ruled by a um, elite of supermen, namely themselves. They had, in this future history, they took over Earth about 2130. Some people, realizing the way the wind was blowing, got away from this by leaving on slower-than-light interstellar colony ships. <clears throat> in the meantime, back on Earth, the transhumanists ran the place for three generations and turned it into a fairly place. But eventually, a revolution broke out, partly instigated by <clears throat> the descendants of the slower-than-light interstellar colonists returning. <clears throat> so eventually, the transhumanists were thought to be exterminated. But in the course of this long war against them, they made very deep preparations to go underground in event of defeat, and that's where they are now. They are, uh, <clears throat> their underground exists, it has time travel, and it's trying to subvert the past in order to set up their own eventual return to power. Now, the way that this works in the, uh, in the, in these books is kind of ingenious in that you can't change history, but you can, uh, you can work around uh, the, <laughs> the, can you sort of uh, give a, a, a pricey of how that works, if you will? Okay. Um, well, anybody who writes about time travel, of course, has to deal with the so-called grandfather paradox. <clears throat> time traveler goes back and shoots his own grandfather before he meets his grandmother. In this case, the time traveler himself could never have been born, in which case, who went back and shot the grandfather? Now, <clears throat> The way I get around this is with something I call the observer effect. <clears throat> the way my characters put it is, reality protects itself. You can't create <clears throat> time paradoxes. <clears throat> Excuse me. You go back and try to shoot your grandfather, and the gun will jam. Or maybe a car will run you over while you're drawing a bead on him. And this latter is why <clears throat> Jason and my other time travelers are extremely careful to avoid <clears throat> observer effect problems because they can be quite lethal. As I said, uh, reality protects itself. It doesn't give a damn how it protects itself. You, you try to create paradoxes or you try to do anything that will create a paradox, people tend to get hurt. Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, the observer effect will get you. But outside of the the... the Transhumanists are trying to create yes. side effects. Um, you, can't, that... you can't change observed history, but a lot of history is unobserved. Mm -hmm. The transhumanists are operating in the nooks and crannies of history, creating time bombs of various kinds, like secret societies that nobody knows about, uh, delayed action, nanotech <clears throat> devices that won't be released until the certain the time they plan to come back, the, the day they call it, sort of the, like a time on target telco. Really, everything comes to fruition then, and unfortunately, uh, the good guys have not been able to find out when the day is supposed to take place. And the good guys are limited somewhat by their own abhorrence of the kind of technological biotech stuff that... Uh... The, uh, the experience with the transhumanist rule of Earth left deep scars on the human psyche. After the transhumanists were thought to be done away with, they passed something called the Human Integrity Act, which says, among other things, <clears throat> no tampering with the human genome, no nanotech applications that blur the line between life and non-life, no <clears throat> direct neural interfacing, with, with, except for a limited number of specialized applications, and so forth. Yeah. So, and this is um, this is what Jason's real mission, or or many of his later missions have have been about, is um, trying to to, to stop this um, slow accumulation of things that's going to allow the, the transhumanists to step in and say, uh, "Hey, we're back." Right. Precisely. Right. <laughs> so, um, although we go back to the dawn of time in uh, Gods of Dawn, 
Um, well, not the dawn of time, but the, the dawn of, uh, of history. Um, we start out in 1970s Italy. Um, so how does the, the time travel team, they have a mission, um, and that's why they're sending in special forces. Uh, okay, yeah. In the course of uh, an academic expedition back to that period to investigate the death of Pope John Paul I, they came to the realization that there were transhumanists operating there in, uh, in Italy in 1978, not only in Rome, but also in Venice. And uh, they had to decide what would, uh, at that time, would have interested the transhumanists in Venice. And uh, the only thing they could think of was the presence of uh, Father Pellegrino Ernetti. So, therefore, Jason goes back to... Uh, <clears throat> investigate uh, what they plan to do in connection with him after he finds out about Dr. or Father Ernetti's experiments. And the, uh, the well, first of all, the, the one thing that you bring up in the book that is um, it's kind of kind of fun because, of course, I lived through it, was the year of um, the three popes when uh, John Paul I uh, croaked. Why... Uh, I have never heard all these conspiracy theories that surround that, but uh, you you dug them up, right? Oh, yes. They're, they're, uh, I didn't make these up. These are very popular. They're, what happened was, um, as you say, 1978 was known as the year of three popes. Pius XII died, and they elected John Paul I. And a month after his election, one fine day, he was found dead in his bed in the morning. So they had to haul the College of Cardinals back to Rome, and they elected John Paul II. Now, the, <clears throat> John Paul I was buried rather hastily with no autopsy, so of course this was fodder for conspiracy theories. One theory is that he was bumped off because he was about to order a thorough house cleaning of the Vatican Bank, which as every conspiracy theory aficionado knows is hand in glove with the Mafia. Another theory is that he was bumped off by the KGB because he was planning to reverse the Vatican's policy of accommodation with the communist regimes in Eastern Europe, and so forth. There are others. Obviously, they can't all be right. Well, that would that, if he were bumped off by the communists, they made a bad mistake. <laughs> uh, they, they, they did indeed. <laughs> yeah, they got John Paul II. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, it, and they go back to meet um, Father uh, Pellegrino Ernetti. Um, now, was this an actual historical person, or indeed, indeed he was. He, um, yes, Father Ernetti um, was a Benedictine monk born in 1925. He was a very prominent musicologist and also one of the church's um, most. Um, expert and successful exorcist. In fact, he wrote a book on exorcism. So far, this is all the truth. And there were, I mean, there, there, I guess there maybe there are. Um, I don't know much about it, but the, in the 70s, exorcism was was not something from the past. No. They, uh, yes, yes, so their father and Eddie, yes, he lived uh, at the, in the Benedictine monastery on the island of San Giorgio Maggiore in Venice. Lovely place, by the way. I checked it out last year when I was in Venice. But anyway, so far, this is all true. Urban legend has it that in the early 1950s, Father Ernetti, who, as I say, was a musicologist, was trying to remove some of the stray harmonics from Gregorian chants, and came to the realization that he was hearing the voices of people who were no longer living. And so he looked into it further, and it turned out that uh, the Pythagorean idea that the harmonics of sound and light never ceased to exist. So working from this, he went to report to Pope Pius Twelfth about this, and subsequently... A high-powered team of researchers was assembled, including none less than Enrico Fermi, and they put together a machine called the Chronovisor, which could uh, retrieve sounds and uh, images 
from the past uh, and make recordings of them. So Father Renetti made recordings of, among other things, the uh, the crucifixion and the Last Supper and the resurrection. So now, this uh, is this an actual rumor uh, that you've come across, or did... it, 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 it's honest to gosh urban legend? <laughs> but uh, huh. but anyway, uh, <clears throat> so after a while, though, at a point roughly corresponding to the death of John Paul I, Father Ernetti stopped cooperating with the Church. In fact, it almost seemed as though he was <clears throat> trying to discredit himself. For example, he published uh, what purported to be a photo of Jesus, which was easily proved to be a fake. Yeah, he also started saying peculiar things, to even more peculiar things, to various real fringe groups. And then eventually he dropped it all together and went back to musicology, finally dying in 1994. <clears throat> now, uh, <clears throat> as for what's attracting the transhumanists, uh, oh, I I'm assuming for fictive purposes that the urban legend is true, and uh, what the transhumanists want is the specs for the chronovisor, because this, you see, would give them something that neither they nor the temporal regulatory authority has, namely a way of observing the past without actually going there. Yeah. So, um, joining Jason during this portion of the book is, um, is a Jesuit uh, time traveler. And he's a rather interesting character. Um, seems like you did a lot of uh, research on that Italy trip, <laughs> for uh, perhaps for write-off purposes. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but tell us about Father Julian Cassende, the the clerk regular of the Society of Jesus. Why? It it just seems like a natural somehow. Jesuits ought to be good time travelers. Well, let's face it. It would probably take a Jesuit to deal with the logic of time travel, if in fact logic is the correct word. Uh, I've already gone into the whole business of the, uh, <clears throat> uh, the observer effect and uh, the, absor the avoidance of paradoxes. Now, as uh, Father Cassinde uh, points out, the Catholic Church in the 24th century has decided that the basis of the observer effect is that God simply won't permit time paradoxes because they violate his most fundamental laws, and uh, nobody else has been able to come up with a better explanation. Now, uh, he, he also, also it's Father Cassinde who uh, tells them about the Usher chronology, which is the basis of what uh, Father Ernetti had been, some of Father Ernetti's uh, researches. The, you see, in the... <clears throat> In the 16th century, a certain Bishop Usher calculated that the, the creation, the Genesis creation, took place in the year 4004 B.C. In fact, he was able to narrow it down to a date and time. And uh, Father Annetti uh, wanted to uh, investigate the origins of the uh, of the Genesis story, the creation story. Now, of course, like any sophisticated 20th century Catholic theologian, he didn't take the Usher chronology seriously. Of course not. But in the back of his mind, he couldn't help thinking, maybe, just possibly... And basically, he couldn't resist it. So he uh, took a look at 4004 BC. And he didn't find that, but he did find something even more disturbing to him. Uh, he did indeed. Uh, but <clears throat> what, he, uh, what he found himself looking at when he went back to 4004 B.C. was the Telloi. Now, of course, Father Renetti didn't know about the Telloi. So, as far as he could see, what the chronovisor was showing him was the, the Anunnaki, the gods of the ancient Sumerians, these pagan gods, were real. And this almost destroys his faith. And this explains why he set out to discredit himself, because he's afraid it will destroy the church if this becomes common knowledge. That there really are gods walking around back then. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, um, and Jason and uh, and Father Cassindi and, and uh, Jason's um, uh, right-hand man, uh, what's his name? Mont Andrego. Mondrago, um, 
realize what's actually going on and jason comes back to his present to uh to set up uh, an expedition to go back there and um and investigate this uh, possibly because he oh and jason also recognizes in the recordings that there's a transhumanist there so um, back to the dawn of time or history. Um, where is Uruk? What is going on with humanity at 4004 BC? Well, Uruk was uh, one of the principal Sumerian cities in what is now Iraq. In fact, the modern nation of Iraq, it, its name derives from Uruk. And uh, 4000, it, it happened that in 4004 BC it was just about the time when the so-called Ubaid culture was giving way to the Uruk culture, named after that city, which was really the first, in the strict sense of the word, civilization, the first uh, city civilization, the, the, the complete with towns and occupational specialization and writing, all that good stuff. Now, in my version of things here, this is partly due to the Nagomo. I mentioned them earlier. They were the, the nemesis of the Teloi. The Teloi had been fighting a war with them. And slightly before 4004 BC, a uh, Nagomo warship crashed into the Persian Gulf. And the uh, survivors, whose, <clears throat> who basically made a career of fighting the Teloi, when they realized that the Teloi are established, on Earth, they started working with the um, the humans, the Sumerians, in the city of Eridu, which was actually the first city on Earth. There was down on the Persian Gulf, and start teaching them the arts of civilization. And they are the basis of the um, uh, <clears throat> the fishmen in Sumerian mythology who taught humans the arts of civilization. You see, the, the, the Nagomo are nice guys compared to the Teloite, which I realize is sort of damning them with faint praise. <laughs> well, at least they're not actively trying to turn us into slaves to serve their eternal will. <laughs> uh, no, they, no, they just want to do the Teloite one in the eye whenever possible. Yeah. So, um... On the cover is, uh, I think this is the Don Mates cover, um, it's, uh, is, uh, yeah, it's Don, um, the uh, same artist that did uh, the, the famous Captain Morgan uh, yes. bottle. Uh, yes, I like him. Label. Yeah, he's great. Um, so uh, is this rather striking young lady from Eridu. <laughs> yes, I do. I, do, I particularly like this cover. If you think about it, you can probably figure out why. Yeah, the, I like it too. <laughs> <laughs> Who is she, and how does she fit in with the story? Um, she she shows up. Also, um, you say later in and in afterwards that she's um, that she's she's brought forth from uh, some of your science fiction influences. Yes, I, I, I make a full confession in my author's note. Uh, I, I'm a long-time Jack Vance head, and uh, I simply couldn't uh, avoid the temptation of borrowing Zanzu, The Girl from Eridu. In fact, originally I was going to entitle this novel The Girl from Eridu, but uh, I just, yeah, which is the title of a poem. Jack Vance wrote. Mm -hmm. It appears in his novel uh, <clears throat> The Palace of Love, which is part of his uh, Demon Princes series. I, I really urge anybody who has not read the Demon Princes series to read it. Uh, I think it's one of the greatest things in 20th century science fiction. I really do. But anyway, I, I just had to borrow Zanzu. But, uh, and in fact, <laughs> in, in a sense, I've, I've almost written... Uh, Backstory to that poem. If uh, anyone who reads this novel and reads that poem will know what I mean. But as for who she is in the novel, she is obviously from the city of Eridu, which is where the Nagomo have established themselves. And uh, when we meet her, she's a prisoner in Uruk, which is dominated by the Teloi in particular. Well, excuse me, as I mentioned earlier, the most of the Teloi had 
left that part of the world in a huff sometime earlier and gone further north, where they became the basis of the Olympian gods and these other Indo-European pantheons. But there's a holdout <clears throat> left in Uruk, a uh, female Teloi, <clears throat> who was the basis of the god Inanna from Sumerian mythology. And she has been joined by a uh, Teloi named Anu, uh, another Sumerian god. Uh, this guy belongs to the Tuova Zhonglu, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Teloi military. He, he's hunting for the Nagomo. So there, <clears throat> so there is a conflict here. They're trying to... <laughs> the Teloi are trying to eradicate this uh, these shipwrecked Nagomo who are living in Eridu. Mm -hmm. And the... Um... Wait a minute. Let me think what I was about to ask you. Oh, just back to her for a moment. She's also, um, she's, she turns out to be quite compelling to um, one of the uh, special forces mm -hmm. guys that has come back with um, Jason as well. Yes. So I kept thinking so of the girl from... He wants uh, to try to take her back to yeah. the 24th century. Yeah. I kept him. thinking of the, uh, the, she's got that allure of the uh, girl and the girl from Empanema also. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, yes. As I say, the, this whole business of him wanting to take her back, but her deciding it would be wrong. Uh, as I say, I'm I'm sort of uh, I was more or less consciously writing, trying to write a backstory to Jack Vance's poem, "The Girl from Eridu." But uh, and it was and it leads to some ethical questions. Now, physically, it is possible to do this. Now, the there is something called the uh, all-you-can-conveniently-carry rule, and this is why time travelers don't arrive in the past naked and empty-handed. Basically, anything you can conveniently carry with you on your own person is going to go with you. The, the energy field uh, will encompass it. And <clears throat> she's a very small woman, and this uh, member of the Jason's team is a very big, strong man. And in theory, it would be possible to do this. In fact, uh, on one occasion, in one of the earlier novels in the series, Jason does this in order to rescue uh, a time traveler that he had taken back there, but whom the time the, the transhumanists had captured and cut out her temporal retrieval devices, mm -hmm. it's called, which is what enables you to snap back to your own time. So uh, it was... A theoretical possibility, but it doesn't happen, and uh, I hope I made the the whole situation compelling. Yeah, well, she's she's an object of she, and she's a cool character as well. Um, the um, so, what are uh, what are you working on at the moment, Steve? Well, as I think you mentioned earlier, I just recently submitted Her Majesty's American. And so right now I'm sort of taking a breather between novels and trying to come up with uh, some new proposals, uh, one of which may be uh, something else in the universe of Her Majesty's American, which, as you said, is uh, alternate historical future history. <clears throat> and uh, another possibility that I've been working on for some time is a sequel to the fantasy novel that I wrote some time ago, Demon's Gate. <clears throat> that I don't know if you recall, but De <clears throat> Demon's Gate is set in a fantasy world based on Bronze Age Europe. I wanted to get away from the standard mm -hmm. fantasy world, which is medieval Europe, and, and minus Christianity, basically. But um, I... <clears throat> Uh, this bears about the same resemblance to the Bronze Age as that. And in the sequel, I want to expand the field of operations to the something resembling the contemporary version of China, which uh, in actual history was run by the Shang Dynasty at that time. Well, that sounds cool. But uh, talk talk a little bit more about uh, Her Majesty's American. Um, it is a space opera. I mean, there it's a ship. We're on a ship. 
Her Majesty's American <clears throat> is set in the 23rd century of a... We, we will be publishing that, by the way, of course. So I'm sorry? A, we will be publishing that, of course, and probably in the fall of 2018. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's good. The, uh, yeah, Her Majesty's American is set in the 23rd century of an alternate timeline in which the American Revolution was patched up. So, and as a result, uh, in the in the 23rd century, there is an interstellar British Empire, which includes, <clears throat> well, it's, it's still called that, although it's large by the 23rd century, it's largely run by North Americans and Indians. But uh, it has rivals, however, and it also has uh, some disgruntled elements, and sometimes... Previously, uh, one group of irreconcilable, diehard North Americans had gone off uh, slower than light to colonize a planet of Tosseti, which, <clears throat> unfortunately, while then, as I say, this was slower than light, and while they were chugging along in suspended animation, back on Earth, the faster-than-light drive was developed, uh, basically similar Drive. So when the colonists arrive at Tall City, the first thing they see is the Union Jack. A big letdown. <laughs> However, the, the, the things are pretty much settled down. The, the Empire's been very decent about it, uh, but uh, there are extremists among them who are plotting with some rather nasty types. And this is the basis my, of the story. My, my protagonist is a North American who is uh, working for the Empire's naval intelligence, and he goes to Tossetti to look into this and finds himself teamed with a local woman who, uh, it turns out, uh, has, shall we say, divided loyalties. Hmm. Well, we're really looking forward to that, and I can just—I really want to see a spaceship with the Union Jack on it on the cover. <laughs> well, you, you read the the short story I wrote. Yeah. The, a, a sudden stop. I, I described the you know, on the, this giant space warship. I uh, I described the half acre Union Jack painted on it. Yeah. Um, that story, by the way, will be in Star Destroyers, our anthology that's coming out in the spring in February. Um, so you could. Good. I'm glad you liked it. Oh, sure. The, uh, the book right now, uh, which sends Jason back to, uh, the, to the Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian, uh, <laughs> dawn of history is Gods of Dawn. Um, it's a lot of fun. It's a book. It's book six in the Temporal Regulatory Authority series, and it's uh, it's out at booksellers everywhere with a great Don Mates cover. Um, Steve, thanks so much for being with us uh, to talk about Gods of Dawn. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But reestablishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. 
Sean touched a key and scrolled down through the report. The details were horrifyingly similar to the attack upon Beshimo at Insulti, and let it be known that Pale Wing was nothing like an independent, sentient ship with the gods only knew what old tech capabilities built into his systems. A trade ship built, well-built, in Korval's own yards. She was a fine vessel, was Pale Wing, with a fine crew aboard her. But as one must phrase it, in the case, only a trade ship, and no more able to maneuver sprightly in tight traffic than an average rock. There it was, on his screen, pale wing on the approach to Liltander, an extremely busy trade hub, very much like Insulty. The ship was well known to traffic. Indeed, Pale Wing's pilot and Liltander's traffic guide greeted each other as old friends might and fell easily into a routine well known to both. Everything proceeded in a seemly and normal manner until, with Pale Wing deep inside the pattern, constrained by other traffic, Two light craft, armed and with perhaps the appearance of police cruisers or hunter ships, arrived and attempted to divert them from their designated path and final docking. An appeal was made to the guide, who said angrily, so it seemed to Sean listening at his desk, that the matter had passed out of her hands. The light craft again demanded that Pale Wing alter course on threat of specific violence, and the pilot complied with the order. To a point. Ama Ven Turlet sat as captain of Pale Wing, a woman of great personal fortitude and a master pilot besides. The next maneuver had her mark on it, bold to the near edge of insanity and impeccably executed. Pale Wing inched through traffic, not quite on the coordinates given, but near enough that it could be seen that a good-faith attempt was being made to comply. Only when she was clear of the tightest congestion was it revealed what that small deviation had gained her. A freighter loomed between Pale Wing and the Hunters, a relatively clear avenue before her, and it was a mad dash then, at velocities that made him catch his breath, with the Hunters scrambling to be away from the freighter. By the time they were in the clear, it was too late, at least, for the easy fulfillment of that specific promise of violence. Pale Wing had aligned herself with traffic control, where she commenced to keep station while sending out a broadband call for a guild mediator. And there the matter stood. The hunters might yet have fired, but the risk to the station or their own visibility stayed their hand. The call for a guild mediator ought to have frozen all pieces in place, of course, but Sean had no illusions about that, had there been fewer witnesses. He leaned back in his chair, staring at the last scene from Pale Wing's video log, the two hunters looking very much like those that had threatened Beshimo, waiting just outside the shadow of the station and Pale Wing, just inside that shadow, holding an entire station hostage to the good behavior of savages, while a world, and more, watched. A call went out for a guild mediator. Liltander being a hub, there was bound to be a guild mediator, or three dozen, lying about, waiting for something to do to pass an afternoon or evening. Sean swallowed, his stomach sour. Self-preservation aside, a ship endangering a station was not something that any mediator worth his certification would overlook. There would at least be a fine, if not an interdiction, and while the hunters would very likely reap more and worse, that was very cold comfort indeed.
The screen beeped, indicating that the log had skipped ahead 4.6 standard hours to the arrival of the mediator and his judgment. Sean reached for his wine glass. The guild mediator had leveled a fine. Not as large a fine as it might have been, but more than negating any profits Pale Wing might have expected to wring from the traders of Liltander Port, had she been permitted to resume docking, which she was not. The guild mediator suggested that Pale Wing take up whatever goods were waiting for her, send down any directed cargo by tug, and quit Liltander Space. What befell the hunters was even less satisfying, as they had been able to produce documents linking them to the local security net as contractors. The guild mediator could do little but remand them to the discipline of their chief, which he did in the strongest possible language. The log entry ended. Sean closed his eyes, ran through a quick, focusing exercise, and opened his eyes to the message waiting light. A letter of apology was in queue from Captain Van Turlet, who offered her resignation, if he wished it, and a letter from Pale Wing's trader, the redoubtable Tel Bracken, begging his instruction. Some hours later, she was back in the galley, a mug of tea cooling in her hand while she stared at a particularly uninteresting piece of decking. She had finished her review of the files pilot Tokel had released to her and, what's the problem, Has? Tolly hitched up onto the edge of the galley's long counter and sat there, arms braced on either side, booted feet swinging above the decking. Hazenthal stirred and sighed. Tolly was a skilled reader of people. And while they had not been partners for a very long time, they had been an effective team. Tolly himself said that they clicked, as if they were two modules that operated well enough on their own, but which, joined, became a single, deadly efficient device. It was nothing to wonder about that he saw her at Brown's study and correctly deduced that she was ill at ease. She raised the mug, tasted cold tea, and grimaced. Shifting out of her lean, she turned toward the pot. Would you like tea? Sure, tea'd be fine, he answered, and waited while she poured. Taking the cup she gave him between his palms, and lowering his face into the steam. Hazenthal resumed her lean against the counter, holding her mug carefully in one hand. You decide to leave us at Biradine? Tolly asked, raising his head and giving her a straight look from guileless blue eyes. Though he was considerably smaller than she was, being Terran to her Ixtrang, Tolly was not a child, nor was he a simpleton. Hazenthal had known that since the first patrol they had made together. She had lately, however, begun to think that he was even more complex than she had supposed. I read the file on Biradine, Tolly continued, after he had taken a sip of his tea. Looks like a nice place for a vacation. Lots to do, climb mountains and swim lakes until you get tired, then go on down to the city and take it easy. Tour the museums. I am not leaving the ship, Hazenthal said heavily. She knew from experience that he was capable of continuing to spout such nonsense for, well, until someone or something diverted his attention. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Tolly said. I'd miss you. That was not quite nonsense, though it partook of certain Terran cultural cues of which she was not entirely certain. That he would miss her. They had been partners, after all. They had each trusted the other to guard their back. That was not something that faded 
quickly, if it faded at all. Did she not miss the elder still, and that despite her sessions with Lady Anthora? She had been his junior for very nearly her entire career as an explorer. He had been a constant of her life until she had... Has, if you're not leaving us, then what's the problem? She sighed. The problem is that the captain gave me to the mission. Tolly sat up a little straighter. Has, this is your decision. If you don't want anything to do with the mission, say it. We'll put you off with a nice draw account, and the pilot'll square it with- No, she interrupted. Hear me. I do not know what the mission is, but you do. Pilot Tokol does. The captain must also know what the mission is, and has judged that I will be of benefit to the team. Even if the pilot had permitted me to learn the mission before making my decision, I could not reverse the captain's orders in this, because she is the captain. And she's got both pieces. Yeah, I see that. Tolly sipped his tea. After a moment, Hazenthal sipped hers. Being who and what she is, Tolly said slowly, Pilot Tokel has feelings, let's say, about people being denied the right to make their own decisions. Hazenthal blinked. I had not considered that, she said. But to make a decision, one must have sufficient data, yeah. He sipped once more and lowered the cup. She didn't exactly think that through. He looked up into her face and gave her a grin. If I was called on to give a professional opinion, I'd say Pilot Tokel hasn't had a lot of practice at this yet. She frowned. Surely the pilot can hear what we say. Sure she can, but we haven't been disrespectful, and I can express my professional opinion. He sighed. Tell you what, Has, since you've made your decision to stay, based on the data available to you, just like the sensible woman I know you are, let's ask the pilot to release the mission files so you can get up to date. In the meantime, what I can tell you, since you've decided to stick with us, understand, is we're bound for Jemiatha's Jumble Stop, which is located at the far end of nowhere, near enough. They got a little bit of a problem with an AI born too fast and without proper training. This is why the pilot goes. This is one of her people she seeks to aid. That's it, Tolly said. It's also why I'm going. I told you once, remember, that I was a specialist. Training AIs, that's my specialty. Mentor, that's the job title. He put the cup on the counter at his side and slid to his feet. Since you're staying aboard, we can jump in, jump out at Biradine, which'll please her, and me too, come to say it. I will tell the pilot my decision now, Hazenthal said, shifting out of her lean to put her mug aside. Good, he said, turning away, and turning back to her when she said his name. Yeah? The woman on the port, she began the woman she had killed for him, the woman who had addressed him as 1362 and struck him in the face with a gun when he did not answer quickly enough. She shook her head, the Terran gesture signifying frustration at her own inability to choose between the multitude of questions she wanted to ask him. Who was she? Tolly murmured. She was Telvaster's backup. Telvaster was the man who tried to shoot you in the back? That was him. Her name was Glynn's Pearl Dorn. She, both of them, were directors, sort of the direct opposite of Pilot Tokel when it comes to matters of free choice. She spoke as though she owned you. 
Well, by her way of thinking, she did own me, or at least considered me hers to use. It happens that I think otherwise, and there hangs an interesting story, maybe, but I'm going to have to tell it to you sometime else. Tea breaks over, and I gotta get back to my chair. Hazenthal took a breath and brought her index finger to her forehead in the gesture that meant, among the troop, that a promise was offered. Let us make a pledge, she said, to trade the tales of ourselves. Tolly blinked, then returned her salute. Let's do that, he said solemnly. Soon. They had attacked Pale Wing, the stupid, stupid Department of the Interior, because it was, of course, the Department of the Interior. The mode of attack was exactly the same that they had used to contain, to try to contain, Cousin Theo whose very refusal to be captured or to stand by to be boarded ought, one would think, to have taught them something. But no, they were idiots, the entire department of them, however many there were, and surely not one over the age of six. Pale Wing. She had served on Pale Wing. She knew Trader Telbracken well, and Captain Van Turlet too. She had friends among the crew. Why, she might have been on board herself. But no, that route went nowhere. What was at issue was the stupidity of the entire Department of the Interior. They were so completely incapable of learning anything that they would very likely continue to assault Corval ships. Why, they were so stupid, they might even try to capture the passage in this witless manner, despite Cousin Theo having actually killed at least one of their ships and Pale Wing. Patty drew a breath. What Captain Van Turlet had done had been very wrong. To endanger the station and the lives of all who lived and worked there? No, that was not the choice of an honorable pilot. The safety of the ship could not trump the lives of those who were not of the ship. And yet, one did perfectly understand why the captain had made that particular choice. She may even have thought it a safe enough bluff, perhaps failing to understand the depths of stupidity from which the enemy operated. Captain Van Turlet would not have known, perhaps, that those pursuing might well have fired upon Pale Wing, despite her position, simply because they were too stupid to comprehend that sometimes missiles go wide of their mark. Or, Paddy thought, they might not have cared if they hold the station so long as they had also taken their prize. She had been at the debriefing session, of course, with the rest of the ship's pilots, Priscilla, the captain, rather, had taken the few questions which had been raised, including one regarding perhaps modifying Beshimo's specialized equipment so that it could be installed in other Corval ships. The captain had said solemnly that she would consult with Captain Waitley and then recalled the passage's own capabilities to the minds of those assembled. The passage does have smart shielding and patterned defense shields, the captain said. We welcome ideas for upgrading or improving our existing systems, anything that may increase our ability to defend ourselves in the case of such a close-in attack. It would seem that our enemy has a bias. Ways in which we can exploit that bias to our advantage would also be helpful. Any suggestions or ideas should be presented to third mate Tiazen. She had then asked for more questions, of which there were none, and dismissed everyone to stations. And that was where Paddy was headed now, to the trade bridge, the master trader having left the meeting during the question period. It would, Paddy thought, hardly be wise to arrive at her station in a state of active anger. 
She needed to concentrate her mind on the incoming catalogs and offers. Therefore, she punched the call button for the elevator, then danced a few steps of Debriot right there in the hallway, confining her anger to the stone keep that already held her fear. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Christopher Rocchio, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And because Christopher Rocchio doesn't want to have any part of that anti-strat Fordian nonsense, the handwritten copy of Hamlet, signed by all the authors in the big Shakespeare anthology known as The Complete Works, including Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, Sir Francis Bacon, Christopher Marlowe, William Stanley, and Roger Manners, the 6th Earl of Derby. Or wait, was he the 5th Earl of Rutland? It's hard to tell, but we know that they're the ones that wrote it, plus a big round of clanging Bronze Age bells and a rousing huzzah to Steve White, author of Gods of Dawn. Do you know I had this weird uh, dream last night, Christopher, about cleaning Shakespeare's apartment. Me and my wife went over to Shakespeare's apartment to clean it, and there was a giant lizard in there that was the size of a uh, Komodo dragon that we had to run out. I don't suppose that's the real author of the plays? Um, that could... You know, I never thought of that. It's more credible than the anti-Stratfordian movement. I see. Well, anyway, please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>